Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Boogaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. We have quite a bit to look forward to in Season 4. The next 10 episodes will feature some old regulars, but also some new blood that I'm really excited about. Uh, Linda Antonsen will be back, but I'll also feature an interview with Elio Garcia. You'll remember that Linda and Elio are Martin's co-authors on The World of Ice and Fire. I'll also include a couple new medievalists. So Oxford's Caroline Larrington will be back. I'm excited to have her back. But I will also bring in a professor of medieval philosophy and a medievalist who specializes in medieval warfare. So we'll have that to look forward to. On this week's episode, Chad and I will be talking about the first and really only Clegane Bowl. This is when the Hound and the Mountain exchange blows, and for some reason, the Hound can't quite seal the deal. So then Chad and I argue over why the Hound isn't going for the head. Steve and I talked about cannibalism and the new actor uh, for the non-goofy Dario. Steve has some pretty strong opinions on this. And in my bird's eye view, we dip into medieval history and learn about King Leon, who is so fat he's deposed of the throne for obesity and in an effort to get his throne back, has his mouth sewn shut. So this week, lots of stuff about eating and overeating and trying not to eat. Things that I've thought about far too often because of my COVID-enhanced dad bod. Without further ado, here is Professor Chad Carmichael. Chad, you're not a show aficionado. You're sort of a book-only guy. I'm a book guy. So here's a question I've never asked you before. Okay. When you're reading the book, do you see Sean Bean when you think of Ned Stark? Yeah, I think I do. Just because of all of that cover art imagery? I don't I don't exactly know why. I mean, I, I have watched a few episodes of the show, so I think that those right, sure, okay. left a big mark for me. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right, so is Tyrion Dinklage? He is, but I, I mean, I, I feel kind of, I've occasionally felt that that was unfortunate because mm-hmm. although, you know, everybody really likes him, that actor, and he seems to have done a, a, a great job. I really think, I think you've pointed this out a few times. I really think he's handsomer than uh, Tyrion is supposed to be in the books. And so I, I, I kind of wish I could have a more authentic mm-hmm. experience of the book where I had my own way of thinking about Tyrion. But, but I think his, his image, his face has somehow dominated my imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, I recently interviewed Greg Webster, who's always good for like some crazy theories and whatnot. Yeah, And one of the things that he brought up was that he thinks that Tyrion was twins. And then in utero, the eggs fused. Mm-hmm. And so that explains two different hair colors, two different eye colors, and, you know, his condition in, in some way. And if that's the case, then, you know, not having him have two different eye colors at least is a huge plot omission for the show. Yeah. That will be different in the book. Right, right. Although I don't do you, know how far to take Greg's theories, but man, they're fun. Right. Do you think that a lot of theories will play out in the books that were not represented at all in the show? Uh, well, I mean, there's certain things that are... like. like let me give you a, great, a good example of this. So Cersei goes to this woods witch, and the woods witch makes this prophecy about Cersei's ultimate demise and the woods witch says in the books that she'll be killed by the Valonqar which is means younger brother mm-hmm. that's not in the show they don't do okay. that in the show they okay. they have her go to a woods witch but she never says she's going to be killed by a younger brother but that got a lot of show watchers really hot and bothered about how is Cersei going to die who's going to kill her is it going to be uh, Tyrion? Is it going to be Jamie? Is it going to be someone else that is someone else's younger brother? How does she die in the show? Uh, well, she she is trying to flee the the crumbling city with Jamie, and they both get crushed by the the stones of the castle. Oh, really? 
And they do do a little homage to the Valonqar, like when Tyrion unearths the corpse of Jamie and Cersei, his hand is kind of placed at her neck. Uh-huh. And so there's like this little wink to like, because a lot of fans were just spinning their wheels over like, yeah. who's going to, how, how, it has to be the Valonqar. And then there were a few of us that were saying, yeah, but that's not, that's in the book. That's not in the show. Yeah. So I do think that there are little things like that, that the show just decided to omit for lots of reasons. Some, right, right. some reasons make more sense than others. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting to me that you're affected by the same sort of show contamination that the rest of us are when you're reading this. To some degree, yeah. Um, Just as visually, visually speaking. Sure. Like, I don't think I have, I don't think I really know what the actor who plays, uh, what's the guy, the Onion Knight, what's that guy's name? Davos. I don't think I know what the actor who plays that guy looks like. So that he's he's mine in my imagination. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Um, you know, Stannis, I don't think I have an actor associated with Right, because that's all season two stuff. Yeah, so I just watched a few episodes, you know, and, and right. decided I didn't want to watch anymore. But Right, um, right, right. Um, Chad, I'm going to read a synopsis of this chapter. Ned and Barristan Selmy reflect on the short life of Hugh of the Vale, who is now only a corpse. The two men confront Robert about his plan to fight in the hands tourney melee. Robert concedes and laments his play as king, laments his lying son, laments his cold wife, and then smells bacon. Ned and Robert laugh over old times at breakfast. Then Ned sits with Sansa at the tilts. After an incident between the Night of Flowers and the Mountain, the Clegane brothers cross swords. After an archery contest, Ned is visited by a costumed Varys who warns him that Robert's life is in danger, and then he implies that Ned's life is also in danger. So, Chad, Carmichael, yes. would you like yes. to talk about a plot point, a theme, or a character? I think I'll climb the ladder of chaos. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm choosing. <laughs> you, had for, you had forsaken it for so many times, I didn't even offer it. Right. Yeah, this, this, is, this is a chaos time, I'm afraid. All right, so, okay, chaos time. Do you want to start or do you want me to start? I'll start. I just want to start by saying that Gregor Clegane is a contemptible person. And uh, I know everybody knows that already, but he's he's just especially in fine form in this uh, in this chapter. Well, he's a serial killer. And we've talked he's about the problem of serial killers before. He's... And of course, Ned is not not concerned with Gregor, who's a right. serial killer. Because Ned turns a blind eye to serial killers. But he, he probably, Gregor brutal. probably killed his dad, probably yeah. killed two of his wives, mm -hmm. killed, probably killed several animals and several servants. I mean, the guy is just, he, he's not just contemptible. He's a murderous monster. A monster, that's right. And I, I feel like it's misleading to call him a serial killer. I don't feel like that's quite... Right. I mean, we have all these associations of serial killers. How many right? times, how many, how many murders does it take to become a serial killer? Well, I, I, he obviously he's murdered a lot of people and he enjoys murdering people. But I just, you know, he doesn't have the kind of um, the kind of psychological complexity or something that you expect in a serial killer. Right. He just seems like a like a brutish monster. Yeah, I think that we're maybe. Um splitting hairs here oh yeah that's that's what def i'm definitely splitting hairs that's what i'm doing yeah right. yeah you're i think you're i think you're you're being a nincompoop chat <laughs> <laughs> i think i just want to say i think he I absolutely think... if he lived in our world he would have to be sneaky and and devise little plans to stalk people mm -hmm. but he doesn't he lives in his world he runs a castle basically and Tywin lets him do whatever he wants, and so he can get away with murder. And so he does it many times. I think it's making interesting. him a serial killer. Yeah, I think it's interesting and in telling that he just. I think he never, almost never talks. He probably says a few words, but you're right. He doesn't have a lot of speaking. He is. He's a mo he's a monster. He's like a and monster. It's really. Um, I mean, this is already a very dark world that Martin has created, and to create a villain who's so dark. Mm -hmm. and, and I mean, it's a real achievement, I think. 
I thought it was funny when Ned told Robert that he was too fat for his armor. <laughs> well, Ned, all right. Part of Ned's appeal to Robert is that he can say things like that. Yeah. And he's not sniveling around like Lancel Lannister. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, and everyone else is kind of, you know, being coy or telling him half truths or trying to, you know, massage the, you know, their agenda. Where Ned, the reason why I think Robert likes Ned is that Ned is always Ned. And he's going to just say it the way he thinks it's, you know, he should be said. And there's something about that that attracts Robert. Mm-hmm. Like Ned, Ned looks like a man ought to look and talks the way a man ought to talk. He's not, right. he's not slinking around in costumes. He's, he's a man's man. Yeah. And so I think that that probably serves Ned really well in this chapter, but we know that eventually it's going to really get Ned in trouble. Right. Um, but not with Robert. Well, we'll see how that goes. We'll see how that goes. Yeah. We're not quite there yet. Did Robert plan to use his Warhammer in the melee? I think so. Yeah. That's some bullshit. Well, you think it's not fair that he has a hammer or something? Everyone else has these blunted swords. And so at at the end of the melee, what happens? You know, they have some bruises, a, a clavicle got broken. Yeah. Um, people, you know, I guess uh, Thoros gets to light his sword on fire which is probably isn't fair either. But Robert Baratheon in there with a war hammer, how do you blunt a war hammer? Yeah, that's a good point. He's going really to, he's going to smash skulls in there. No one else is going to have a weapon that can, that can get him. Yeah, it's a good point. And I mean, it, it really fits nicely with the point that Ned and, and uh, Selmy make to him where they, they say, look, nobody's going to, nobody's going to come at you really. Cause you're the King. And, um, I thought it was funny about that too, that he immediately proves them right by threatening um, Selmy. <laughs> right? He's a, he's a, he's like so mad about it that he yeah. throws something at Selmy and like tells him to get out before he kills him. Right. And it's like, well, that's that's exactly right. That's exactly what right, Robert, because I said something you didn't like. Now I you may kill me. Right. <laughs> And that's exactly how everybody on the on the field is going to reason when they think about hitting you. Right. Okay. So, sure, 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 sure. Um I mean that that's part of it. Part of it is that you know, you don't you don't want to be the guy that killed the king. Yeah. Or you, you don't want to be the guy that, you know, that made the king angry enough to want to kill you or whatever. My point is that Warhammer should be disallowed in the melee. Yeah, I think you're right. It just seems it's unfair. It, it's not. Do like- we have conclusive evidence that he was going to use the hammer? I think I remember it saying that his hammer was was. It was um, like on, on display or whatever. It was on display. We don't know for sure what he was going to do, but if he was going to, like, like I asked you, like, do you think he was going to use his warhammer? And you, you just assumed yes. Yeah, that's kind of what I assumed too. I, I mean, we never hear of him using a sword, right? Not to say that he couldn't use a sword. I'm just saying, whatever his intentions were, I'm going to propose a new rule to the melee. No lighting yeah. swords on fire. No warhammers. No warhammers. What if you could get like a half-weight warhammer? Would a half-weight warhammer be okay? <laughs> yeah, if you could promise me that it wasn't going to crush armor, yeah, then I'd be like, all right, I- I'll consider it. Like aluminum? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like something that will give someone a good, you know, ring someone's bell, maybe. But Right. Like, it, it, armor is ineffectual in this case. The mountain killed this, this young man who used to be uh, a squire, right? Hugh of the Vale, yes. That's right, Hugh. That's right. Yeah. Um, he, We think he killed that guy. And it's, I mean, the suggestion is that the mountain received an order from, yeah. like, I guess, Tywin or whoever's behind. See, that's the question. I just think it's funny to imagine the conversation where some Lannister tries to tell Gregor what to do. Well, all right. But we know that it happens. We know that Tywin, so. Tywin does tell the mountain what to do. 
It's just hard to imagine somebody exerting control over the guy. He seems like a, it seems a little bit like trying to exert control over a bear. He's a little bit like Darth Vader. Yeah. It's like, yeah, there are people that outrank Darth Vader, but Darth Vader kind of goes along with it. um, Maybe because he's got some other goal in mind or something. Yeah. But, you know, don't, don't take it too far. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Don't take it too far. All right, so interesting development. Robert admits that uh, he knew that his son was lying about the wolf. Yeah, so Robert is not, I mean, he's foolish for sure, right? He is. I can't help but really love Robert. I know that you're not supposed to or something, but I just just find him lovable even though he's such a fool. I find this very strange. It's a very strange uh, approach to Robert. He just, he's a man who's dominated by his appetites. And I just feel like in another situation, he would have been a better man than he is. Well, he says he wants to go across the narrow sea and become the the hedge, the king who became a hedge knight or something like that. See, he would be better. He would be a better person if he did that. I don't know if he'd be better. He's still the kind of person who is so tired and frustrated that he allows his best friend's daughter's pet to be beheaded or something, or he calls for the pelt or something. Yeah. That's unforgivable. I don't know. If you were, if, if Chad, if, (laughs) if you were to be responsible for Mm -hmm. my daughter's dog's death, we would have words. But if we lived in this world and it wouldn't. Oh, I would, I would pull off my glove and slap thee across thy face. Yeah. If that were to happen. See, this is the this is the continual problem with this story is that everybody's really um, has crossed moral lines that are just unacceptable uh, from our perspective as you know people in in our world, um, and and yet it's an interesting story and you want to follow along and you find yourself caring about and and ide- identifying with some of these characters, and you you're constantly reminded, oh my gosh, this person's a terrible person, but I'm sitting here just sort of rooting for them or something. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's one of the negative things, in a way, about, about these books. But it's, it's a struggle as a reader, I think. So Hugh killed John Aron, or at least he was the, you know, he was the device yeah. used to kill John Aron, right? Yeah. Oh, What's at least this too, is what Varys says. Varys yeah. claims. Uh, he was close to John Aron. Like, he, it's very dark that he was the killer. Yeah, but there was Varys suggested that he he became very prosperous, mm-hmm. like like John Ar- jo- or John Aaron's retinue, his family and whatnot retired to the Vale, but Hugh stayed behind and became very prosperous, according yeah. to Varys. Right. So he's in someone else's pocket. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just very sad because it, you imagine that Hugh was trusted uh, by by John. Perhaps. Perhaps. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, we don't know a lot about John Arne's personality except for through the sort of the the tinted memories of Robert and and Ned, right? Mm-hmm. He's mm-hmm. his father figure. Um, we do know that he didn't like the idea of Robert killing Daenerys when mm-hmm. she was a child. You do get the sense that he seems to be a man of high character from one point of view. Yeah. On the other hand, he allows Robert to beggar the realm. He suggests that Robert should marry Tywin's daughter. Mm-hmm. So you could look at John Arne in, diff- in a different way and, and think, well, he was foolish too in that he basically allowed Tywin to step in and become this really major political force in the kingdom. Right, right, right. And couldn't even rein in Robert's spending when it started to be a, a real big problem. So I don't know about John Arryn's legacy. I don't know if he also was a fool. Maybe he was a little like Ned, just not. Maybe he was a little like Ned. That's yeah. right. So Hugh poisoned John. Yeah. So then the question is who is behind Hugh? And I think that that Varys drops his first little clue at the very end of this chapter about um, about who is behind Hugh. Oh, yeah? What did he say? Well, it's one of these, you know, how you know how Martin will do these three-stage reveals? 
where he'll mm-hmm. like just leave a, a little morsel of a breadcrumb. And then a really astute reader will see and, ha- you know, start developing a theory. And then he'll follow it up with a confirmation that's understated. Right. And then later on, he'll like, for all of the rest of us dummies who didn't see it the first time, <laughs> he'll like hit you over the head with a two by four saying it was, it was Lysa Aaron who did it. Right, right. So th- this is called, I think that the, the breadcrumb here is that it, he was killed with the tears of lice. Yeah. Yeah. And it's spelled in the same way that Lysa spells her name. Right. And I don't think it's meant to be like, like in world, I don't think that the poison's named after her. Or she's named after the poison. I just think that this is a literary, cr- this is a literary clue. Sure. Um, For, you know, kind of in some way tickles Martin. Like, right. like look, I told you on page 200 what, who it was. You know, sure. if you yeah. had eyes to see it. So I, I, I do think that he drops this little, um, this first little clue in this chapter. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. I mi- I missed that this time. Well, I missed it. The, I, I missed it a lot of times. And yeah. I mean, part of me thinks it probably wasn't just Lysa. Yeah. You know, I don't think Lysa is the kind of person who would do that of her own volition. All right. I got a question for you. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, after the the joust with um, Loris and uh, the mountain, um, and the mountain's about to come kill Loris, right? Yeah. The hound steps in to protect him and, and fights Gregor. Um, the Clegane Bowl. Yep. That's right. And it says, uh, Thrice Ned saw Sir Gregor aim savage blows at the hound's head helmet. Yet not once did Sandor send a cut at his brother's unprotected face. Yeah, yeah. I just wasn't sure how to interpret that. Uh, did that have any meaning? I I paused there too. And the only thing that I could come up with is that from Ned's vantage point, the Hound is fighting more honorably. Yeah. He's thinking... I mean, I don't know if this is true. It could be that the hound just doesn't want to kill his big brother yet, you know. Um, but for, I think from Ned's perspective, he's noticing, oh, this guy knows he's fighting an opponent who's not wearing headgear. Yeah. And so he's not he's not fighting to murder him. Right. Uh, because if he was, he'd be going for the head. Sure. Um. I did, How we did know you take that the that? hound hates him, right? We know that the hound hates the mountain. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I hate Donald Trump, but I wouldn't. I probably wouldn't kill him. You're not the hound. I'm... <laughs> <laughs> Let's remind ourselves that the hound murdered a child just a few, you know, half half a book ago. So, for the record, I, mean, I would not kill Donald Trump. I just want to make, <laughs> make that clear. No, I know, I know you're a you're a gentle soul. <laughs> so yeah, no, the, so no, the the hound is willing to murder, and he can brag about it to Sansa and saying, "Actually, I kind of like it." Yeah, and and your daddy probably likes it, you know that kind of thing. Right. So you're right. It very well could be that he he's not ready to. It's his big brother. Like he he hates his big brother, and yet there's probably there's probably cultural taboos about kin slain, but there's probably also like a psychological. You know, am I ready to kill? No way. That doesn't sound right to me. Here's my theory. What he's just scared of the Lannisters. What. He thinks if he kills his uh, the mountain, that the Lannisters, who plainly enough have the guy's leash, would be unhappy with him. No one would fault him. He's sent, it's probably thousands of eyes on him right now. Clearly, yeah. the mountain was about to do something dishonorable. He's defending the Knight of Flowers, who everyone loves. Yeah. If he were to take off the mountain's head, no one could fault him for doing that. Not even the Lannisters, huh? I mean, if they would probably promote him. They're like, well, we don't have the mountain anymore. Uh, hey, um, Sandor, 
how about uh taking over and being our our lead henchman yeah i don't think that they have any affection for the mountain they just right. second year maybe he was afraid he, a mad dog or whatever maybe, maybe he he was still trying to win the tournament and he felt like if he if he killed gregor he wouldn't get selected as the winner. i think my solution's better it's there's there's Your this solution... thing about there's this thing about your brother that even if you hate him you're you're not just gonna kill him as if he's some stranger on the street i think when your brother is a complete monster who just um who burned your face and murdered your father and just hacked the head off of a horse i think it's a different situation i'm sorry (laughs) i think i think we're both just gonna have to plead ignorance on this one it's a mysterious thing right i okay here's what i really think None of the theories we've just offered are very good explanation of him not trying to hurt Gregor worse. Mm. So, so it's a mystery. Well, we know in this world that kinslaying is a taboo, right? You just said that no one would blame him if he did it. Yeah, but he would blame himself. That does not sound like the hound. <laughs> <laughs> I just I don't picture the hound like going back to his to his quarters and, and sitting down and just thinking, oh, man, I just, what have I done? I feel so bad about it. Like, that's just not his. No, but if you're in the if you, I'm saying that when you're in the throws, do you, you ever watch throw mama from the train? <laughs> I'm sure I did. But it's this guy hates his mother and he wants her dead. But when it comes right down to it just can't do it he just can't kill his own mother that just doesn't it's just there's yeah. something unnatural you're just gonna it. stick to this sort of theory that you've got okay all right it's Let's the only on. thing that either of us has said that makes any sense i think i think the theory that he's worried about crossing powerful people is a better theory but all right, all right i got another question okay why did why did ned trust Varys in this chapter Varys is making a lot of sense, I think. I, that's that's exactly what you would expect Varys to do, is make a lot of sense and be untrustworthy, right? I mean, I just I just thought Ned was so dumb in this uh, interaction. Yeah. He was given really no evidence. Varys told him something that made sense to him, so he's like, you know what? I think you're just right about everything, because what you just said made a lot of sense. Ned, Ned has been spinning his wheels. Yeah. Ned's mind is like this little hamster wheel that just keeps like spinning over the same data over and over and over. Mm-hmm. And finally, Varys comes in with some very interesting additional data that is like, oh, this guy's connecting dots that that I hadn't thought about. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try to milk him for information here. Right. I'm going to clearly this guy is better at this than I am. I I should at least ask him. Yeah. Who killed John Aaron? Right. And he does, and he gets an answer that it seems very plausible, and he doesn't have a plausible answer yet. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I t- I'll be honest. I've been rereading these last few chapters, um, in this in the sort of the the 30s chapters. Yeah. And I keep puzzling over Varys's motives. I keep thinking, yeah. like, what is he doing? Like, what's his He's clearly creating impressions. He wants it's like he's toying with Pycelle at one point. He seems to be helping Ned and yet um and maybe trying to keep Ned alive, but uh I don't know. It's it's really hard to guess at what Varys is up to. I think Varys is supposed to be mysterious to the maximum. And he is. And it's it's impossible I think it's an impossible mystery. Hmm. He's too he's too clever for us to be able to tell. Some notable introductions, Chad. Mm-hmm. Um, Tears of Lice introduced. Uh, we meet Lancel Lannister for the first time, and although she's not named, I do think we hear the first mention of Maya Stone. Do you remember my who Maya Stone is? Yes. She is a bastard daughter, because her last name is Stone, of the oh, Vale. Right. Oh, right. Okay. And um, and we'll meet her up at the Vale 
in this book. Uh, but she's about the same age as Robert's first child. Right, 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 right. So I think that I think that she's mentioned not by name, but she's uh, mentioned in a roundabout way as Robert's first, um, yeah. you know, out of wedlock progeny. Uh, so, all right. So, uh, book differences, show differences. One major difference in the show: Barristan doesn't go in the tent to try to convince Robert not to fight, mm-hmm. and they give one of Barristan's key lines to Ned. So Ned says, "They're not going to hit you. You're the king, so you're going to win." And that is the thing that convinces uh, Robert not to fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's the exact right thing to say to him. But in the book, it's Barristan that knows the way to get to Robert's ego. Yeah. Ned is not smart enough to know that in the book. He kind of recognizes, oh, Barristan is going about this a, a much better way than I would have ever thought of. Yeah. It really does raise my opinion of Barristan mm-hmm. in a way that I hadn't before. In fact, the first time I read this, I just assumed that that was Ned's line. And then the second time I read this chapter, I realized, oh, that's not Ned. I, I was sort of projecting my show memory onto the onto the book. I think you're being a little too hard on Ned here. Well, not- if if I am, then uh, then I will. Accept. I mean, I, I'm often I'm often trying to keep people from being too hard on Ned. Yeah, look, I, I just here's what I want to observe. It's really disappointing and and maybe maybe even bad for a friendship when you have to treat a close friend. You have to manipulate a close friend in that way instead of just being straight with him. <laughs> you know? And so he's trying to be a he's trying to be Robert's friend. He's trying to speak plainly mm. to him instead of uh, manipulating him. And everybody always manipulates Robert, right? What does Varys say at the end of this chapter? He says, if I would have come to you and told you that Robert was going to be killed in the melee, you would have run to Robert and Robert would have taken it as a challenge. Yeah. And he would have said, well, I'm going to fight just to prove that they can't kill me in that way. Right. right. Um, and so I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think yeah. that that Varys has that kind of sense. He knows that Robert's ego rules the day. You think Robert could have pulled it off? I don't think I think Robert might have died because Maybe when's the last time he actually swung that hammer? It, I don't see I don't feel like he's the kind of guy who goes out and is like training. I feel like he trains by going to war and there hasn't been a war in 14 years. Right. He might be really fat and slow. And yep. if you're trying to swing around a big old hammer like that. that would, but it would have been kind of sweet if Robert went out there and, and they tried to kill him and they couldn't. Right. <laughs> it would have been, you know, it would have been badass for sure. <laughs> That's right. It would have been badass, but I'm wondering whether he's too fat and slow to yeah. actually be effectual with a warhammer. At this, by point. the way, when I think of Robert, I do not think I don't remember what the actor looks like. I think of an of a 1980s metal uh, rock star, <laughs> and and old Robert, I think of yeah. a fattened version of that. You know what you should be thinking of. Uh, do you remember Fight Club? Yeah. Do you remember the the character that uh, Meatloaf plays in Fight Club? Yeah. yeah. That's Robert Brown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can see that. <laughs> Steve. Yes, sir. If I gave you my permission, and I was already dead, mm-hmm. and it was the only way that you could survive, would you eat my arm? When did you give me the permission? Is this thing written down, or is it like as you're dying? All right, let's say we're both on a desert island, and the seagulls are all dead, and uh, I've just been impaled. And as I'm dying, my, with my last breath, <laughs> I say, "Steve, eat my arm. <laughs> eat my arm." <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. You would do it. Sure. All right, so you get along with the fins. So this is this is a uh, <laughs> this is a Heather moment that I love. We got uh, we got cannibals now. <laughs> well, I mean, come on, we've seen Ramsey at work. Is yeah. this really going to be? I love this show because 
it's in some ways it's able to kind of grab some really old taboos that are so taboo that most people it never even occurs to them to think about right so twin cest or whatever um oh really old taboo really old taboo like for <laughs> for a long time this has been a taboo yeah, it's like back in the 50s <laughs> or you know things like can you really trust a bastard i mean these this is old school stuff right this show is able to kind of take things like cannibalism. Episode talked about uh, having sex with goats, like I think a couple times. That's right. Yeah, really, really old taboos. So, although you know, I guess it depends on your culture. You're gonna advocate here. Um, I'm open-minded. You know, you get a thousand years of a culture reinforcing "don't eat other people." Uh, it's gonna, you know, there's gonna be something deep-seated. In the core of your conscious. At the very yeah. least, you're going to be afraid. Is this person just hanging out with me because they think I'm delish? Some of us are more delicious than others, Steve. <laughs> so this season that's coming up is going to be a super, super expensive season. And it could just be the CGI. Bigger dragons. You know, big, we got bigger dragons. Clearly, they're more of a problem, right? Right. Uh, but bigger, you know, bigger events, maybe bigger battle scenes or whatever. We, you know, clearly we have some kind of convergence at the wall that's that's probably going to be. Yeah, a I mean, if we're gonna, yeah, if we're gonna be bringing in potential for White Walkers, I mean, that's between CGI and makeup, that's a lot. So we're just just totally different, Dario. Totally different, Dario. To the point and... where I'm like, who is this character, and why should I know who he is? So I had to stop watching and look it up. They even like said his name like three times just to just to kind of say, "Hey, by the way, this is what we're doing now." <laughs> I mean, hey. I, I mean, could you? I mean, do it. Look, man, like you said, they're they're already starting to diverge from the books. Well, a Jack and Hagar face shift or something. <laughs> do whatever you want. Right. Have have her say, "Your face displeases me," like off screen. And he comes, do you like this one? And I'm like, ah, fine, I guess he's that guy now. <laughs> don't just don't just come at me with, you know, oh, yeah, you know that goofball that we just saw? Now he's just a regular dude. Like, make this guy goofy. Maybe, he's still, like, give him the same hair. So here's, what, here's where they went wrong, Steve. I'm going to read you what Dario is supposed to look like. And I'm getting this from the wiki, all right? Mm-hmm. Dario is lithe and smooth-skinned. Okay. With bright, deep blue eyes, which can appear almost purple. His curly hair reaches his collar, and he keeps his beard cut in three prongs. Dario dyes his hair and trident beard, sometimes blue, other times deep purple, sometimes a different color on either side. His fingernails are also enameled blue. Dario's mustachios are painted gold. He has a large, curvy nose. And a golden tooth gleams in his mouth. So I feel like um, the guy from Warrant that was the, the last Dario, while not following all of those criteria, at least captured the spirit, right? See, here's the thing. If they would have followed this description, it you almost doesn't it matter anything. who the actor is. Right. You would have known by looking at the purple haired guy with the gold tooth and go, oh, okay, yes. that's, that's Dario. Exactly. But you could have brought in some is... other, some other like guy that kind of looked like, kind of looked like Dario, and put all the makeup on him, and you would have never known it was a different character. All right. It's just like uh, when in RoboCop three when they just made the face look like Peter Weller's. Okay, now let me ask you this: as described, what does that tell us about Danny's taste in men? <laughs> yeah, I. Uh, she's a freak. But so this is a, a an issue that I had. Like I mean, okay, you've already made the decision in the previous season to not follow all of those attributes. That's fine, you know. It's it's your world. But then this guy is like, this guy could be anybody in this saga, right? I mean, there's yeah. been there's at least a dozen dudes that look like Dario looks like right now, right? To me, he doesn't stand out at all. Like, there's nothing about him that's like, it's that guy. So now he's just a rugged white dude in a series with plenty of rugged white dudes. 
we are rotten with the rugged <laughs> we white. Are just yeah. We, I, in fact, if this show is just called Game of Rugged White Dudes, no one would know any difference. So I guess the old Dario like got some sort of movie deal. He was like on some sort of uh, transporter. He's yeah, like, and then he bad said guy. It, he said it was more political his his uh, leaving than it was. Oh, yeah, I started really? reading this stuff because I'm just like, because I'll be honest, like, you know, I yeah, he's a goofball, but I'm like, but I, but I but I got it right, and like his looks, his whole everything worked in terms of like me being like, what's okay, what's this, what are you all about, Danny? What do you think? And, and then this guy, and I'm like, wait, this is the guy? He's just a dude. All right, so I think that just we're we're on the same page. Neither of us like like this. However, I will say this. The show tends to choose pretty great actors, right? And I kind of like the idea that they just thought, if we think that that guy's a better actor than the other guy, I kind of don't care if he looks like the other guy. Mm. I'm just going to choose the best actor for the role. I don't even care if like one is like a blonde and one one's a brunette. I just don't care. Just you give me the best you actor. You couldn't throw a wig on him? <laughs> That's true. I mean, how long would that be? That's true. Maybe there was some kind of feedback from the audience. Maybe there a lot of people thought he was a goofball. I, I don't the, know what yeah, they the did. Goof, yeah, the great goofball content. That was the politics that he was talking about. I can't <laughs> help but if I'm a goofball. It's just the way God made me. I want to know if this new actor can whistle because he's got to be. He's got to pull off a pretty mean whistle for me <laughs> to buy it. Uh, all right. So I want to talk. I want to talk about Cersei and Jamie. Yeah, man. We talked about the possibility, you know, that they, they're different now. Well, they're certainly different now, but I kind of get the sense from this episode that Jamie was always more into Cersei than Cersei was into Jamie. Yeah, but I think you alluded to that last time, right? Like, I mean, we're talking about her with, with like... Uh, yeah, he was with Lancel. She was with yeah, Lancel. Yeah, so, and he's he's been, like... So this was kind of his whole thing. Like, it it this is the... Uh, the confirmation that his motivation to get back was almost exclusively for Cersei. So even if he's changed his mind or, or he's had some complicated feelings along the way, it's still this sense of like, yeah, but I was pot committed to this. So I'm still kind of hoping that this will work out. Even if it's a, even if it's misguided. Right. Um, That's right. So yeah. So, and so, but for Cersei, it was just kind of like, I mean, she's the real sociopath, right? I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna create a scale, and it could it could be taught. I mean, this could be a taught thing. Like you're okay, you're raised by Tywin Lannister, and then you are, you know, you basically from the time you're 16 to you know you're 40 or whatever, you are playing the games of King's Landing, and you get the sense that she's just a survivor. She's and she's going to look up for herself. Well, and then, and while she while Jamie's been gone, she's been charting a, a a different path. She's had to negotiate a lot of different things, and she's had to make her way. And uh, and she's she's you know good or bad or easy or not. I don't. Jamie's one of these things. It's like well now I have to now I have to navigate this again. And uh, she says something like, "You're too late. Yeah, you were too took, late. You took too long. Took too long." And it was kind of like. Does that mean it's sort of like, all right, I'm over you? Or does it mean like you could have helped me in a number of ways and I realize I'm self-sufficient. I don't need you or yeah. something like that. Yeah. So there's a lot there, right? It could be like, yeah, I'm like, you could read it initially, like almost a certain petulance, like, well, I wanted you here sooner. You're not. So now I'm mad at you. But there's more to it than that. I think what you just laid out is this idea of like, yeah, I mean, you gave me enough time. To, to get over either needing you or whatever. I don't like now I got to on top of it. What are you now? You're maimed. You're not going to take over what Castle Rock. Who are you? And what I got to deal with this drama now too. There's also the age thing. And this is a, a lot of, a lot of people have this problem where the thing that attracts you to someone when you're young is not the thing that attracts you to them when you're older. Mm-hmm. Especially with men that won't grow up. Uh, it's like, 
you were exciting when you were young and I kind of liked the spontaneity and I kind of liked that I was with Peter Pan when we were both 20. Now that we're in our 40s, dude, grow up, man. Right. And also, if you had been here all the time, I might not have noticed this. She also kind of puts it on him like, you're the one that chased Ned Stark out of the city. Like, you didn't have to leave. Right. Like, basically, you know, you attacked Ned Stark of your own volition. It started this combination of tumblers in motion, and it ended up with you in prison. And so you brought that on yourself. I do think she there's a little bit of sociopath there. I'm just, I guess I'm trying to look at it from her point of view at the same time, but it's hard to. Well, especially with what she says and, and the thing about Cersei is unlike some of these other characters, you don't necessarily need to read between the, the lines with her. <laughs> yeah, she, wear, she wears pretty, it on her sleeve, right? She's pretty clear, you know, and um, her motives are her motives and she holds on to them pretty, um, pretty unabashedly. Cersei and Kyburn are striking up a little relationship. That's interesting. You don't hear Cersei praise too many people, but she likes the mad scientist. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was that was kind of kind of kind of an interesting twist. <laughs> Arya and the Hound. Yeah, man. Talk about a <laughs> subplot. I'm all in for. They could just do everything on Arya and the Hound. They could do a whole season with Arya and the Hound. I'd be, just I'd be all in on These it. two, I mean, just in terms of the way that they work together and 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 what it does for the for the narrative. Arya, she is a stone cold killer. Yep. She's not just flirting with it anymore. No, she's doing it. And if there was any other <laughs> there's any question about it. And it's almost like she thinks like is she out over her skis or does she think Oh, he's going to back me up. That's that's a great question, right? And I get there. I interpreted it as, look, man, I don't really have all that much to live for. Um, right. I'm looking to get revenge. That's what's keeping me alive. So if it kills me, that's fine too. I mean, talk about the Terminator. Now she's the Terminator. Right. She's sort of like she's got these these kill commands in her vision, and if, if she if she thinks, oh. I can get vengeance right now. I don't even care if I die doing it. Right. So if you look at the Deadpool, there's, you know, she wants these certain people dead, but it's like, from a logical standpoint, it's like, what are the odds I can make it through all of them and then still get to Joffrey? <laughs> right. I mean, that's like, that's a, that's a, that's a tall order. So um, I'm going to just, I'm going to start clipping off what I can clip off. And I think she really wants that sword back. She died dead. That was clear. That was clear because that it means a couple of things, right? I mean, getting it back means that she was able to get it back from that who took it. Um, it's her sword, you know. It's um, it's her sword, and it was given to her when her family was still intact. Yeah, right. And so it reminds her of John. It reminds her of Ned. It reminds her of you if know. You're, if you're romantic at all, to do anything to your Deadpool list with yeah. that particular sword that's, that's uh, right that's poetic right she's kind of sick of sitting on you know next next to him <laughs> yeah yeah oh man that scene when she's got her own horse is just fantastic yeah fantastic i just get the sense that these two like whatever age difference there is there like we noted the age like the the pronounced age difference between uh Tyrion and sansa mm-hmm but these two, just as sort of comrades on the road, they're yeah. really not that different. You know, they've both seen some things. They both had a sort of a traumatic childhood experience. They've got a lot that unites them. And they don't care if they eat every chicken in the room, man. Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah. I love the scene where you, you realize, okay, the hound is actually going to turn on this guy. Because there was a little bit there where the hound was just like, look, let's just get through this. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. Right, right. And then, like, Polliver just flips a switch, and the hound thinks, yeah, I guess I'm going to have to prove that I'm the biggest badass in the room. Right. And, and Arya's face just lights up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So we're introduced to Oberyn Martell. Yeah. And boy, are we. Uh, now, yeah, Prince Martel, and he's also called the Red Viper. Okay. Like, I guess the, I guess the, these people in Dorne, they're, 
they're known for like using like like using a lot of poison, like poisoning their blades and and part of it is that it kind of it's like, hey, snakes are our thing. We we're really into snakes. And so they call this guy the Red Viper. Okay. Now you're a snake guy, right, Steve? Uh yeah. I mean there's there's um have you ever reason. taken a snake's poison and put it on a blade? No. Have you ever thought about it? No, because I like snakes, but I will not mess with the poisonous snake. I won't. I don't even want to be around. I won't be in the same room with them. Really? Yeah. So you you're okay with a like a ball snake? Sure. Yeah. But if there's any suggestion of poison, you're not in the. You're not even in the room. No, no. I. This is something because like uh, it, it is. It is interesting um, how that works out because I don't know that I'm, I think Heather tends to be a little bit more like, yeah, I mean, she doesn't want one or anything, but I mean, I think she could handle it probably better than I could. I remember going to the Sebastopol pet store back when it was across from Supreme Burger mm-hmm. um, and had a big old rattlesnake in like this glass terrarium mm-hmm. and it was fascinating, but man, I hated going in there. Like I'd mm. go in there and I'd look at it because I was like, wow, that's a rattlesnake. I've never seen one. But then it was like, that shouldn't be here. <laughs> it shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be here. And so, and again, it, my memory of it, I was probably like three or four, I think, when I went in there. But so my memory of it is just huge. Um, but I think it was because of just the, uh, how ominous it was and and just and i could not understand i'm like well why would somebody want that why would you want that in your house i had an experience that i've never had before with a wolf at a zoo okay i'm not a big zoo fan i don't like zoos yeah i'm I'm the same book um but i was at this zoo because it was like central illinois and there was nothing to do and we were like well there's a zoo you go to and i went to this zoo and I've been in zoos where there was like a panther or, you know, a lion or a tiger or something on the other side of bars. Right. And I was fine. Like, I know that that I know that that beast would kill me if it had a chance. Sure. But I went to the zoo and they had this plexiglass wall. And these wolves on the other side of the wall. And these wolves were just kind of walking around looking at me. I freaked out. Oh, wow. Just being that close to a wolf, and it's sort of like the plexiglass didn't give any kind of visual. Like, I knew it was there. Right. But it was kind of like being at the top of a really tall building and, like, standing right next to the glass, and you still feel a little bit woozy. Yeah, yeah. I had that experience with wolves, man. Yeah, I don't know that I've ever actually seen a wolf, now that I think about it. Hmm. Well, I don't recommend it. Okay. Well, I mean, that's, that's fair. So this guy, Oberyn, in the books... It may be hinted at that he's bisexual. Like there are a couple little hints dropped, but again, HBO is going to play up the sex stuff. Sure. Um, and that becomes sort of almost essential to his character. Right. Right. He's very open-minded. You get the sense that he's not impressed with your social status. Right. Like he's he's happy to just parade around his paramour and. Yeah, and he's all about just sort of um, he's 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 a little bit of the, this this I don't care about what you guys think I don't even care about the fact that this is Lannister country I don't care I think um, it's kind of of an amazing feat to bring in someone who is as interesting and menacing as he is at this stage in the game right because I you almost get the sense like oh shit Tywin's in trouble. Yeah, it is interesting because there is a sense of like, um, I had a conversation not too long ago about playing poker and I consider myself decent, especially like in a hold'em type situation. I understand like what should happen. And when mm-hmm. you're playing against somebody who doesn't care about what should happen, they're sometimes the hardest opponent. Yeah. Cause they're hold they're, they're getting those, those cards on the river that like, well, nobody would wait for that. Yeah, someone with no strategy is harder to read than someone with a strategy. Right, because they're like they can. I mean, that's you know, just because you you you're playing the odds of someone. I mean, the odds are just the odds; they're not the reality. And so you've got somebody here who like you know the Lannisters and Tywin has said it very carefully. 
about how like he's big picture oriented. He's not here for yeah. the whims of his children. He's he's got he's got a bigger play at stake. Whereas this guy, you get the sense of being like, ah, oh, just dude, I'll come right in and I'll call my shot. I will look you right in the eye. So the backstory here is that when the city was overthrown by Robert, there was a move to kill every Targaryen heir. And this is when sort of Danny and her brother get spirited away to Essos. And one of his, I guess his niece and nephew, uh, by way of Targaryen marriage, was killed by the Hound's brother, right? Yeah, Mountain. And the, and the Mountain is really sort of the, he's like the hitman. He's like the Luca Brazzi for, uh, for Tywin. And this has upset Oberyn so much so that even... You know, 15 years later, he hates the Lannisters so much that even if he's getting down in the other room in a brothel and he hears Reigns of Castamere, yeah, he's going to get up, go to the other room, and someone's going to die. <laughs> Which is an interesting moment, right? And especially uh, timing-wise, because Reigns of Castamere is still sort of echoing in fans' minds. Yeah. Yeah, we've been taught to know what that song means. And then to have someone come in and be like, "Yeah, you know what? I'm, I'd kill over that song." You, you, it almost resonates maybe with the fan at that point. It's like, "Yeah, man, I, that song doesn't mean good things." And he's in a place. He's in King's Landing where that song just gets played over and over and over. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And he's just going to be triggered and triggered and triggered, right? It's like listening to Cheryl Crow at CVS. You know, you're going to have to. <laughs> You know, you know, going in, you're like, okay, I really need that lotion, but I'm gonna have Cheryl to. Crow. I'm gonna have to soak up the sun at some point here. <laughs> For this week's bird's eye view, I'd like to talk about the perceptions of plumpness in the medieval period. Here, I'm borrowing from a fantastic essay. From medievalist Ken Monshine. By the way, Ken will be joining me for Danny's next chapter. My conversation with Chad noted Robert's fatness. Famously, Ned tells the king that he has grown too fat for his armor. Moreover, it's clear that Ned disapproves of Robert's rotund dad bod. Well, I'm certainly an expert on the dad bod problem. I'm no expert on medieval conceptions of fatness. So I turned to Ken's article on medievalists.net. The article is titled Fatness and Thinness in the Middle Ages. It's a great article. It's short, worth reading for sure. One of the things that Ken emphasizes is that perceptions of the virtues and vices of volume varied. These varied according to geography, class, gender, just to name a few. I'll focus on kings and knights here because these seem most relevant to Robert's situation. He is, after all, a king who dreams of being a simple knight again. Moreover, he laments his own largeness because he desperately wants to fit into his armor to compete in the melee. This, as Stark and Selmy both observe, is a sport of knights, not kings. Thus, Robert's dad bod is a reflection on his existential dissonance. Ken explains that many folks considered knights to require an athletic build. The fit of one's armor was important as well as one's dexterity once fully armed. At the very least, knights needed to bend at the middle, something that Robert would have had trouble with, even with his breastplate in place. That said, a man within the knightly class was expected to afford lots and lots of food. The trick here was that a knight was expected to be generous with his excess. Ken also reminds us that in the tale of Sir Gawain, the titular knight is said to have a thin waist, thus to be ideal. By the way, I looked it up. There are multiple correct ways to pronounce Gawain. So if you've just seen the Green Knight and now you're wondering how to pronounce it correctly, there are multiple views on this. But back to the matter at hand. But the Middle Ages does not speak with one voice on this matter. Some writers attempt to subvert the ideal. I think we can say generally, however, there, that there was an ideal to be subverted. What then about kings? In many ways, the ideals for the knightly class and the ideals for kingship overlapped. But Ken points out that some among the Carolinians of medieval France associated prodigious eating with rulership. 
Much like early American pop culture, being fat was often associated with wealth. Of course, this was at times a problem for kings who took their gastronomic liberties to extremes. Ken offers the example of the 10th century King Sancho of Leon, who exceeded 500 pounds. He had trouble riding, walking, and procreating. This led to him being deposed from the throne in 958. Sancho ended up seeking a weight loss treatment, so to speak, from the Sultan of Cordova. This treatment involved having his mouth sewn shut, vigorous massage, and being fed some sort of elixir of opium and herbs. This did indeed lead to his weight loss, and he was able to retake the throne two years later from some dude named Ordono the Wicked. Six years after that, he was assassinated by way of poison. God, I love this stuff. And that's all for this week. 